It's the Code St. Luke telephone broadcasting service and podcast for Tuesday, August 4, 2020. On a special live broadcast today, we have Hershey Dwoskin with In the Headlines. Welcome, Hershey. Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to our weekly talk on current events. And I um, have to confess that my first thought to today was to speak about um, the American elections and uh, we'll definitely speak about that perhaps next week. Um, but I saw something uh, on the news yesterday and I said, no, 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 no. You can't really ignore uh, what's happening all around the world uh, with regards to the coronavirus. And I thought maybe today, as we haven't spoken about it since the very beginning, that I might do a bit of an update about this uh, issue um, especially because some people are, their lives, all our lives have been affected by it either directly, meaning that we have been sick or know someone who's been sick, or indirectly, meaning that the economic um, uh, results of this pandemic have affected us, or in socially, we're... Um, uh, the schools have been closed and our social lives have been disrupted one way or another. Uh, in our own community um, of seniors, uh, the senior centers have been closed and seniors meetings have been, uh, have been put off. So one way or another, um, our lives have all been affected. The piece of news that I saw yesterday that what so impressed me was that in the United States, a quarter of the people have not made their rent payments in June or have not made their mortgage payments in June. Now, when you think that there are many people in the U.S., as here, who live in their own houses that have no mortgage, so that would have to be at least, at least a quarter of the total population. If you take a quarter of the rest of those people uh, not being able to pay their rent or their mortgage, it means that it's an enormous amount of people whose um, most basic part of their lives have been affected. Um, also, um, because of ongoing negotiations in the US, a moratorium on uh, evictions or on mortgage um, uh, seizures has uh, ended. And so that in a certain way, what this virus has done and the government reactions to it has been to delay the most painful parts of the result, economic results of the virus. So we've sort of pushed things down the road a little bit, but inevitably what happens is that um, um, the uh, negative effects of this have to hit somewhere, somehow. And we've sort of, you know, delayed things, but we haven't uh, prevented things. The delay was supposed to be something which, if it only lasted for a couple of months, uh, we would be able to make up. However, we're now four and a half months into this crisis. And uh, in some parts of the world, the crisis has uh, softened a bit, uh, including Canada and in Western Europe. In other parts of the world, the crisis is is hot and even getting hotter. And I will give you some figures and facts about this uh, later on. 
in general, we would have to say that with the exception of the United States, the rest of the uh, industrialized and wealthy world seems to have passed over the worst of it, meaning Canada, uh, Japan, Korea, uh, Europe. Uh, we've all, we're all a bit on the downside of this crisis. However, in the developing world, especially in South America, where things are exploding, in Africa, when they're, where they're just sort of getting started and going up quickly, um, in um, South Asia, in India, where things are similarly exploding, um, uh, the, the, the most of the world hasn't seen the worst of it yet. I did not mention our China, which is the, at this point, the world's largest country, which seems to have gone over where it started. It's, they seem to have uh, ma managed to master this crisis. So with that as a kind of a, um, an introduction, let's have a look and see where we're at and the economic effects specifically of this whole uh, crisis. Um, there isn't anywhere in the world economically that has not suffered because of this crisis. There's no country in the world that has escaped its effects. And uh, there has been a drop in the world's economies pretty well. I looked up the charts of the 70 world's largest economies and pretty well all of them uh, have dropped the economic activity, economic output, production, gross domestic product has dropped in all of the countries, almost all of them. One major exception, in other words, the country that's doing the best now in the whole world uh, post-COVID, what do you think it is? China, where the, where the COVID started. China is the only large economy in the world where uh, the economic activity is increasing, um, even as we speak today. However, the rate of increase in China, instead of being 6%, is now only at 1.5%. Still, it's an up. Pretty well everywhere else is a down. The sectors, of course, that have been affected the most, uh, tourism, airlines, hotels, um, countries that depend on these economic factors are the ones who are suffering the most. So in Europe, for example, it would be Spain, Italy, France, and Greece. These are very tourist-dependent countries. In the Caribbean, where cruise ships don't stop anymore, uh, the islands have been devastated. Bahamas, which is like a 51st state almost of the U.S., has been suffering tremendously. Uh, Latin America, the economies there have really dropped badly because of the uptick in cases, because tourism is, uh, is, uh, is, is down to nothing, uh, and because... Uh, countries all around the world that send their workers elsewhere, as they do in Latin America. These workers have um, less work because of unemployment, and therefore they're sending less money back home. So this would be countries like Mexico and um, Peru and uh, all the other countries that have migrant workers going abroad. In the Middle East, uh, similarly, their economies have been devastated. 
particularly Lebanon, who's, who's, uh, who's, who, who, whose economy is down almost by 70%. Um, no transfers from abroad. Their currency has lost all of its value. And um, countries in the Middle East which depend on oil, which is the wealthier ones, oil prices dropped by 30% in the last year. And obviously their economies have dropped by a similar margin, uh, by, by, by a large margin, I won't say a similar margin, by a large margin. But most importantly, all of the migrant workers that they employ have been, uh, many of them have been sent home. And of course, the home countries um, suffer because of that. Um, in Israel today, for example, unemployment is over 20%. And there's riots in the streets every day, demonstrations to protest this high unemployment. Uh, again, due to the drop of tourism, the drop of international trade, um, uh, hotels, uh, restaurants, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in Canada, our unemployment has jumped up to 12%. In the U.S., it's now 11%. Uh, there are 30 million unemployed people in the U.S. And uh, some people have said, well, you know, the reason there are so many unemployed people is because the government is paying people so much money that they don't want to go to find work. Uh, this is a Republican argument, and it's the argument why they want to stop the $600 uh, uh, a week top-up for people who are unemployed. There is a grain of truth in this, uh, in this um, statement, for sure, especially people who can't arrange daycare for their kids. Um, they're financially better off to stay home. But even most people, not all, but most people who even are financially better off would rather be working because no one knows when these uh, payments will end and uh, people don't feel productive at home. There are in the United States today 5 million jobs that are available, but there's 30 million unemployed people. So you do the math and figure out, you know, um, and figure out, uh, you know, uh, if people are staying home on purpose kind of thing. Um, the worst affected countries in the world, the countries whose economies have dropped the most, are um, Argentina, Italy, Spain, France, and Peru. Um, the unemployment rates, today, in the worst unemployment rates in the world today of major countries, South Africa, 30%. Colombia, 21%. The Philippines, which was a star, the star of East Asia just a year ago, now has a 17% unemployment rate. When you think of all the Filipinos who go out to work abroad, Filipinos who work in cruise ships, Filipinos who work in the service industry, uh, in hotels, uh, Filipinos who work as maids and caregivers, all around the world, if those, if all around the world the economy has slowed down and people lose their jobs, well, then these service workers are the first ones to, to be let go and to be sent home. And therefore, the Philippines, with their 17% unemployment rate, is the third highest of the, of the world's major countries. Uh, besides unemployment, governments have been spending money like crazy 
to try to, uh, as I was saying before, to sort of put a finger in the dike to stop the water from coming in. And um, in, in Canada and other countries, they've said, well, we will do everything we can in order to not allow the economies to collapse. What that means, of course, is spending money that these countries don't have. In other words, if, if the economies have slowed down so much and tax collections have slowed down so much because of that, governments are borrowing money to, to shovel out to the public at large. Uh, right now, the United States is uh, spending um, $1 for every 84 cents they collect. They're 16% overdrawn. Canada is 11%. Even giants like Germany or Switzerland, who of course would never spend one penny that they didn't collect, are now overdrawn by 7% and 6% respectively. Israel is similar to Canada with an 11% uh, overspending um, ratio. Uh, clearly, this money is borrowed. Clearly, interest has to be paid on this money. And not that clearly, the money one day has to be paid back. So we are, in a way, um, mortgaging our children's and grandchildren's futures in order to deal with the crisis that we are experiencing right now. And it's the same thing almost, not everywhere, but almost all around the world. Um, besides this factor, another economic factor is that in, uh, with the exception of Europe and the Euro, um, most currencies have dropped drastically against the US dollar. Which uh, the results, what that means of course is that Items that are imported have to be costing much more. And people who've lost their jobs can't afford to buy uh, what they used to be able to afford to buy. So, for example, the, the worst drops of major countries in the world have been Argentina, and this is major countries. Argentina, whose currency has dropped 40% against the dollar. Uh, Brazil, 27%. And even Mexico, which was holding even for so long, their currency has dropped 14% against the U.S. dollar. Clearly, this has and will have major effects on people's lives in those countries. Uh, they will become poorer. I mentioned the outstanding case of Lebanon, where uh, three and a half million middle-class people out of a country of five million have dropped into poverty because their currency has dropped uh, 70 to 80 percent against the U.S. dollar. So um, people who had no U.S. dollars um, all of a sudden face a uh, crisis of being able to buy basic foods, basic food uh, supplies. Countries all around the world have been thrown into drastic poverty. People um, can't afford to pay even for the most basic necessities. Um, in uh, the third, the poorest countries are affected the most. So the poor have gotten even poorer. And the countries in Latin America are the ones which seem to have been really the hardest hit in this crisis. But make no mistake, this crisis has affected everyone, including in the wealthy uh, world, in the United States, uh, there are people who 
you know, the United States is the country in the Western world where the gap between the rich and the poor has been the highest. Uh, and Israel is the country in the Western world who's number two in the gap between the rich and the poor. Um, the government payments that have been being paid out to people have temporarily stopped the um, uh, spread of this gap. But uh, the underlying weaknesses have gotten even worse. And so that the moment that governments stop paying their, their populations, the uh, crisis of poverty will explode all the more. For people who, for some reason or other, have not been receiving these payments, including people who are illegal in the United States, for example, uh, their uh, crisis is even more multiplied because of the high unemployment. Um, it's harder to find even kind of illegal jobs, um, you know, restaurants being closed, uh, taxis not being taken. Uh, as I was saying before, if people are at home, they don't need uh, home care. Um, if people are at home, they don't need cleaners. And so all these jobs that sort of kept the, the um, the people who are here illegally going, those jobs have been the first ones to disappear, and those people have been neg negatively affected more than anyone else in society. Obviously, um, if you are well off and you have lost money in the stock market, which in most cases have has been the case around the world, but the U.S. has now sort of stabilized, well, you know, your, 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 um, your wealth has gone down somewhat, but you still are wealthy. But for the people that I mentioned before, people who are living hand to mouth, people who are illegally in the U.S., for example, and can't get the uh, benefit payments, their lives are really in crisis. Um, the, uh, the fact that... Uh, the recovery has not, the, the solution has not come quickly, has not led to a quick economic recovery. Some people were talking about a V-shaped recovery. If you think of a V going down fast, it goes up fast. That hasn't happened. Um, at the beginning of this disaster, people felt that, you know, when summer would come around, that um, the heat would uh, deal with the... Um, with the uh, virus as it happens in a flu, with the uh, influenza, with the seasonal flu. So that hasn't happened. Um, and because of that, uh, when cases did start to go uh, down a little bit in the US, there was in many ways a premature opening up of the economy in order to get people back to work and uh, that just led to an um, uh, explosion of cases in the U.S. And uh, therefore, the recovery that got going uh, has stalled. And, um, you know, this is something which is the most discouraging. People don't want to get back to work only to be told, no, we're closing up again and you have to go home. We all heard of bankruptcies and major bankruptcies of, uh, of uh, retailers, the last one being Lord & Taylor, uh, a company which the Bay had bought uh, just recently but sold luckily a year ago. 
and all the other major big names uh, retailing that you all know about, Neiman Marcus and the rest, uh, have all gone bankrupt. Uh, not only that, but uh, owners of uh, commercial spaces, they have had, of course, huge trouble because if stores can't pay the rent, then the companies that own those stores, they can't pay their uh, lenders and they're also in trouble. Uh, in Canada, the Rio Can Company, the largest owner of shopping centers, has seen their stock go down from $26 a share to $15 a share. So uh, besides airlines uh, and hotels, the retail sector is the one which has been, you know, the hardest uh, hit by this epidemic. And it's an enormous sector. It's a, it's, it's, it's a huge sector. Um, um, page here. Um, in the United States, you know that they are discussing at this moment uh, how much more help to give to the society. They haven't yet come up with an agreement between the government and the uh, Democratic Party. Uh, and while this disagreement goes on, um, of course, people's economic lives are affected uh, tremendously. Um, the um, global pandemic, which is what it is, is requiring a global solution. And if, for example, one country um, is able to rescue itself, as Western Europe has and perhaps Canada has, there's no real long-term solution unless the pandemic is conquered all over the world, because people will be traveling from one place to another. Right now in Canada, uh, we have a complete global ban on travel. In Europe, they've opened it up a little bit to countries which are uh, less affected by the virus. Um, but unless there is a total solution, such as a vaccine or a cure, uh, the whole world will still be sort of held to ransom by this. So I wanted to talk about, for people who are not uh, kind of uh, up to date on numbers, just to give some uh, up-to-date numbers on where we are in this whole pandemic and where we're headed. So the world theoretically has recorded somewhere around 20 million cases. Now we all know that uh, there's a lot of uh, inaccuracy in the reporting of cases. Sometimes the cases are, are being hidden on purpose to make the countries look better. And Iran has just uh, has just uh, has just uh, made kind of a weird announcement, saying that you know they have 40 million cases in that country alone, which is multiple times the amount that they mentioned, and no one really knows where they got this number from. Officially, the world as a whole now has somewhere around 18 or 20 million official cases. Because so many cases are um, uh, asymptomatic, uh, no one really knows how many cases there are. The estimation is that you can multiply by 10 the amount of um, asymptomatic uh, cases and non-measured cases to the amount of measured cases. So that would mean theoretically that in the world, instead of 
18 million cases, there's maybe 180 million or 150 million or 200 million. Nobody really knows for sure. In the world, there have been 700,000 people who have officially died of coronavirus. Now, the number of deaths is also underreported because every, every country will count their cases differently. Uh, some will only um, count the case of a death of coronavirus if there's been a test done. Um, some have counted, not counted cases of coronavirus where there was an underlying problem like a heart problem or cancer. And the, the death certificate may say they died of that particular thing. But, um, you know, coronavirus was maybe the cause or, or a contributing cause of the death. And that's not really recorded on official statistics. So even the case numbers are the most unreliable, but the death cases are also unreliable. And especially at the very beginning of the virus, when people weren't sure what it was, there were many cases of the virus which caused death, which weren't recorded as a death. The U.S., as we all so well, some of you know, people have been uh, keeping close track of that, has officially had 156,000 deaths. So, with four percent of the population in the world, the U.S. has somewhere around 25 percent of the deaths officially recorded in the world. Um, therefore, when the president of the U.S. says that the U.S. is doing great, uh, anybody uh, with a common sense can just say, well, how great are you doing if you've got uh, six times the number of deaths as you have population uh, in the world? Um, the U.S. is also... Is, the number one country in total cases in the world, closing on to 5 million official cases. Uh, Brazil is the second uh, most cases, uh, and India is the third most cases. All of the, those countries have cases in the millions. Canada over here, we have had uh, so far 117,000 official cases, which doesn't sound like a lot but it is a lot because it, our population is nine times less than the U.S. So if you multiply our 117,000 cases by nine, you still get close to a, the equivalent of a million cases in the U.S., um, which uh, would still be a lot of cases. In terms of um, the uh, total deaths in uh, this virus, we have had 9,000 in Canada. Again, multiply nine by nine and you get 81,000 deaths in Canada versus 155,000 deaths in the US. So our death rate is only half of what the US is. It's not nothing, a half is still quite a lot. So where in the world are the cases growing the fastest? Let's look at that a little bit just to give some interesting statistics. Um, Panama, of the major countries, I'm not talking about the tiny little ones where uh, the populations are so small that an increase of a few thousand makes a huge uh, percentage difference. But of the larger, larger countries in the world today, um, the fastest growing countries in the number of cases in the last week, last seven days, 
are Panama, Colombia, Brazil, the US, Peru, Israel, and South Africa. Um, as you can see, really, with the exception of the US and Israel, all of the countries are in the developing world where the cases are growing up, growing the fastest. So in the last week, in the last week, the US has had 421,000 new cases. Brazil has had 310,000, and Israel has had 10,500. If you, if you uh, want to give a comparison by population, um, Pan Panama, which is the highest, has 168 new cases per 100,000 people. Um, Brazil has had 147. Uh, the United States has had 129 cases per 100,000 population, and Israel 118 cases in the last week per 100,000. How many has Canada had per 100,000? Seven. So it just tells you what an enormous difference there is in the growth of this disease all around the world. Now, so I said that the US is the uh, fourth fastest growing uh, um, uh, caseload in the world at 129 per 100,000. So that's the U.S. as a whole. But if we take Florida, our beloved Florida, they haven't had 129 new cases per 100,000. They've had 275 cases per 100,000. So it's double, more than double the U.S. average and way more than the highest in the world, which was Panama at 168. Compare 275 to 168, and you get the idea of how fast this virus is growing in some parts of the U.S., especially the southern states and the western states. So President Trump just gave a, a news conference uh, yesterday, and he said, we're doing great. We're making great progress. But anybody with a paper and pencil who looks at this would say, how is the U.S. making great progress? How is Florida making great progress? Um, so that's in cases. Let's look at deaths of coronavirus in the last week and measure those things out. So the U.S. is 10th in the world in the number of deaths per 100,000 people in the last week. So it's not the fourth in the world, which it is in cases, it's 10th in the world in number of deaths. But still, 10th in the world is, is pretty high. So um, the highest countries in deaths in the last week are Bolivia and Colombia. So uh, when we're talking about Brazil, add Bolivia and Colombia into the mix, and Peru also. And you see that this virus has really had the most effect in South America more than in any other continent in the world. And um, uh, it's, uh, South America is just going through a uh, kind of a health emergency that even, uh, you know, even the U.S. Is, is not quite up as far as they are. So in the last um, uh, week, 
the numbers in Bolivia and Colombia of deaths per 100,000 people is five, five. Um, Brazil is the sixth with three, and the United States as a whole has had 7,500 deaths in the last week, which would mean two per 100,000 people. However, again, if we look at the United States, the number and the highest in the world is five per 100,000, but Mississippi is seven and Florida is six. So in other words, if Mississippi and Florida were countries, they would be the fastest growing countries in the world uh, facing deaths per 100,000 because of COVID. So there's no way that anyone could convince uh, people who know the facts, and these are very um, not speculative facts, these are uh, published uh, facts uh, um, by, uh, checked by John Hopkins University and others, that the United States is still in the middle uh, of this epidemic. And uh, in 30 of the 50 states in the United States, the numbers are going up in uh, deaths, uh, uh, in, in the deaths. However, in number of cases, the United States in the last week has had fewer cases than it's had in the week previous. Now that's led Mr. Trump to say that we're on the right path. But of course, when you start up, when you start at a level which is so high and you go down a little bit, the direction is good, but the total numbers are still terrible compared to the rest of the industrialized world. So we could ask the question why this is. And um, of course, there is no, there is no uh, definitive answer. But it's very easy to point to the fact that the United States has had a very haphazard um, reaction to this disease. And some uh, political writers have written that because the parts of the United States which were affected the worst and the earliest, they, those states were all Democratic voting states, meaning New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Rhode Island. Those places had the most cases per capita, the most deaths per capita. And President Trump could have looked at that and said, who cares? Doesn't affect my people, so why should I care? What did affect him was, of course, the economy slowing down so much. So he, he said, well, if the cases are only in the Northeast, let's open up the, the let's open up the economy so that the economy will get going and so the unemployment rate will go down. So I will look good. So I will win the next election. But needless to say, um, uh, his his uh, attitude toward the disease, even if it did not uh, affect all of the people, even if the doctors knew better. Uh, Mr. Trump still has 40% of the people in the U.S. who think he's doing a great job. And if you take away those Northeastern Democratic states, it's more than 50%. So if more than 50% believe what he says and that the virus is not really that serious, well, uh, they opened up, they didn't use masks, they didn't avoid large gatherings. And sure enough, the uh, pandemic spread to their states. And their states are the ones who are now suffering the most, and not the Northeast, which is suffering the least. 
So Florida, Arizona, Texas, um, Louisiana, those are the states where the pandemic is growing now uh, the fastest and pretty well. Of the top 10 states where it's growing the fastest, nine of them are uh, voted Democratic, uh, Republican in the last election. And only Nevada, which was kind of a tie almost, um, is the only Democratic state which uh, is in the top 10 of the fastest growing states. So clearly Trump realizes now, now that he has a problem. Uh, and that is why the um, uh, political winds have shifted uh, even more against him, because people realize after all this time that he wasn't telling the truth about the virus and that he has no national strategy against it. And he's dumped everything in the lap of the states and the cities. Uh, and that's the problem. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about what I started with. Uh, well, oh, no, I didn't start with, but I wanted to mention that the United Nations came out and said that a billion, one billion children in the world are not going to school. So clearly, that's, of course, a seventh of the world's population. And Mr. Trump wants the schools to open as fast as possible because he wants life to return to normal as fast as possible. He wants people to forget about the virus as fast as possible so that he can get reelected. However, we have seen, and, and, and the science has said that children under 10 are less likely to spread the um, virus than any other uh, sector of the population. And health-wise, they're less affected if they do get the virus than any other sector of the population. And therefore, the argument is, well, open up the schools. Uh, Israel is a fantastic example of what happens when things go wrong, because that was a country which was affected early on by the virus because of travel from uh, Europe to Israel uh, in uh, February uh, when this virus was just getting going. It spread in Israel quite quickly, uh, but it was controlled quite quickly because of a ma massive lockdown which resulted in, as I mentioned, a 20% unemployment rate. So the country was locked down and locked down hard to the point where there were only about two or 250 to 300 deaths of the virus in the whole country for months on end. Well, things got so good that uh, the government decided to reopen the schools. And uh, the moment that happened, the moment that happened, there were huge outbreaks of the virus in different schools around the country. And needless to say, the students passed this to the parents and grandparents, and the virus took off again. As I said, to the point where um, Israel is now the uh, seventh fastest growing country in the world in number of new cases. And the number of deaths, of course, went up accordingly uh, with, a, with a lag period. So um, the number of deaths in the Israel had doubled in, in just the last month uh, compared to the first four months of the virus where you know, the, the accumulation was there. So it's a lesson to the rest of the world to say um, you know, that it's not over and that if you let your guard down, it can jump up again. 
there were uh, new cases in cruise ships. The Norwegian uh, small cruise companies decided since cases had gone down so much in Europe that they would start cruising again. And lo and behold, two cruise ships uh, uh, you know, went off and 40% of the passengers and crew tested positive. And so this is a warning sign for the cruise industry as well. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, let's just talk a little bit about Canada for a second here. Um, as I said, our, our new cases are under one per 100,000. Uh, new deaths are under one per 100,000, I should say. Our new cases are seven per 100,000. Uh, Quebec is still the uh, leading province in uh, the country in terms of number of cases of around 57,000 out of 117,000. And the number of deaths, which is 5,700 out of 9,000. Um, so we were hit the first, we were hit the hardest. But today, in terms of the number of cases growing, the fastest growing province per capita in Canada today is now Saskatchewan. Um, and um, uh, Saskatchewan, Quebec, and Alberta are pretty well tied in the um, fastest growing number of cases in the country. Um, and so uh, we're still in this fight. Um, why uh, the premier wants to open the schools, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, we're still in the middle of it all. Um, uh, why there isn't a uh, requirement of masks uh, uh, to be worn, uh, um, you know, everywhere uh, inside. We still don't know quite why that is. Um, the Premier seems to want to be okay with bars opening. And we know that bars are a place, bars and parties are places where young people gather with no social distancing and where the cases are likely to spread the most. Um, so I think, uh, you know, as a uh, kind of a quick overview, this is an overview of where we're at. Uh, we could talk a little bit about vaccines because uh, the president of the United States promised a vaccine. I think he said August, way back when he said he thought he'd have one by August. Of course, there isn't one. Um, but vaccine research has shown a lot of promise. And there are vaccines that are in uh, late stages of testing. And there are companies who said we are going to produce hundreds of millions of doses of a vaccine without even knowing if the vaccine works. The reason for that is, in case it does work, which they're hoping it would, that it would be available. They would have 500 million doses for available for distribution right away. Now, needless to say, uh, some people in the world are saying, well, uh, you know, if a uh, vaccine is found, the richest countries will be the ones who will get it first because they'll be able to pay for it. And uh, this is true. Um, but, um, you know, what other way, a logical way would there be of distributing uh, uh, vaccines 
when there isn't enough for everybody, one measure uh, uh, of where it should go would be the places that have invested the money to make the vaccine or the places where the vaccine is being actually manufactured. Um, but the fact is, is if they can make 500 million doses, they can make 5 billion doses. Once you're up to that scale, although it's true that the, um, the wealthier countries might be the first ones to get it, it won't be long before everybody, there's enough made for everyone. The next question is, is where, whether, of course, people will take it. And um, there are indications that somewhere around 30% of people say, no, they don't want to take a vaccine. And uh, is, is, would this be enough? Would 70% of people um, being inoculated be enough to protect the entire population? Again, it's an unknown but it's a lot better than having 0% being protected from uh, the vaccine for right now. Uh, there are also vaccines being produced in many different countries so that even if the first vaccine is produced, say, in, in the United States and they refuse to share with everybody else, there are uh, vaccines being produced in India, there's vaccines being produced in China, which are the two largest countries in the world, who therefore could use service their own populations first. Uh, Canada is in a bit of a bind because we're such a small country. Uh, we don't have a, um, uh, a candidate being produced in the country at this moment with, with hope of, of, of uh, quick distribution. But we would just have to rely on the second, we'll call it on second helpings, um, after the uh, you know main meal is eaten by the big guys that uh, hopefully will be you know in the first line of number two people to be able to get the uh, vaccine which is available and um, the uh, optimism of uh, Dr. Fauci says that well maybe by spring 2021 would be the most the first most realistic date to be able to uh, benefit from this vaccine. And so if that's the case, it means that one whole year will have passed uh, without any uh, effective uh, vaccine uh, and with treatment which is um, uh, uh, only partially successful. But one trend that we do know from the beginning till now is that treatment has gotten better. So the vaccine the, the, uh, the virus itself hasn't changed all that much. It doesn't seem to have gotten more severe and it doesn't seem to have gotten more mild as, as, as some people did predict. Um, but the treatments have gotten better because of experience both with drugs and with uh, hospital uh, treatment itself, uh, which has resulted in a lower death rate um, per capita than was at the beginning. So if we go back to the Canadian figures and we say, well, we've had 9,000 deaths, this is true, but the vast majority of them were at the very beginning, and especially in nursing homes, um, and nursing home patients who were transferred to hospitals where the hospitals had really no understanding and no good tools to deal with these patients. And the overcrowding led, of course, to you know, much worse outcomes than would have been the case with no overcrowding. So um, overall then, 
the world and Canada in particular and Europe uh, has gotten much better at the, at the um, treatment of the disease, even though there is no cure for it. So uh, I think, uh, let me just check my time, yeah. So I think that's a kind of a, sort of a quick uh, thumbnail sketch of where we're at. I think it's a useful thing to do to sort of see where we are. And I would say that for people who are listening to me, uh, people who are like me, seniors, we are the ones who are in a certain sense the least negatively affected by this, um, by this disease. Even though we are in the highest risk category because we don't have to go to school, because uh, we don't have to go to a daily job, uh, because we don't have to uh, be socially um, active in our jobs or in our schools, we are, it's easier for ourselves to be isolated and um, it's easier therefore for ourselves to be protected from this disease. Uh, and because we don't, if, if for, the, for many of us, because we are getting uh, pensions or other sort of uh, financial support, we don't have to go out and risk our, our kind of uh, health by working as many other people have been doing. So, um, you know, I don't want to say that we're lucky because nobody's lucky in this situation, but we are of the uh, different sectors of society, I would say we are the lucky-est. Um, so let me just stop now and see what uh, comments or questions you may have. And uh, if nothing, then we can go on to, uh, you know, some of the political events of the day. Hershey, we had a question earlier, um, yeah. about 20 minutes ago during your talk, when you were talking okay. about, uh, I guess, uh, money. The question was, where is all the borrowed money coming from? I have, people are so fascinated by this. And the, the, um, the answer is not so simple. Um, each, each country has an ability to create money out of nothing. Now, some countries have a better ability of doing it, and some countries have a worse ability of doing it. Um, but in essence, in essence, the government is borrowing from itself. And it is saying, I'm going to pay myself back. Where you have a, strong, a country with a strong economy, uh, like Canada or Western Europe or the United States, the ability to sort of create money by borrowing from yourself is easier than in a country in the third world, like, say, Argentina or, or South Africa, uh, where... There, if, if it's seen by the rest of the world that this country is spending money it doesn't have, the first reaction will be to uh, sell all the currencies that may be held. In other words, drop the value of their currency, number one, and to sell any obligations that that country has. In other words, uh, if there's foreign debt, if foreign debt is a big part of the country's uh, debt structure, the, that foreign debt will be sold and no one will want to lend that money 
to the countries um, in the future. So in other words, uh, countries which are more financially vulnerable by spending money they don't have make it impossible for that country to borrow money abroad. And since there's only so much money inside of that country, which is not much, it can't create money out of nothing the way wealthy countries can. Because the moment it starts to print banknotes, the value of those banknotes will drop instantaneously because nobody will want them. And that's the uh, kind of uh, the way that works. Because the US dollar is so strongly uh, worldwide, the United States government can literally print money and shovel it out to the people's pockets without the value of that money dropping at all. So uh, where it comes from is not the easiest thing to explain. But, you know, right now it's being created, you know, in a way out of nothing. Now, it's not out of nothing. Those, those amount, those uh, extra spending is being recorded somewhere on the books. So it is money which is going to be owed and has to be paid back, but it has to, it's as if the government has to pay itself back for the money that it's spent already. That's about the most simple kind of explanation that I could, that I could come up with. Hey, Howard uh, is here. Howard, do you have a question for Hershey? Yes. Um, his uh, health advisor, what's his name, Burks, has gone to the mat for Trump, but yesterday he called her pathetic. What do you what do you make of that? Well, you know, for people who are are we'll call them binge watchers of uh, of CNN and and Fox News and uh, the other networks. Uh, number one, I would say that you know if if this serves to increase your anxiety, I would just not bother with it. That's the first thing. Um, because these all-day news channels have to create content, and then they have to comment on the content. So I find it a bit, in a way, disturbing to see that um, you might see a politician on TV, uh, and they might say something, and then the rest of the news uh, cycle is commenting on what the person said or didn't say. In other words, these, these CNNs and Fox Newses and MSNBCs, in a way, are creating content for themselves and then using that content to add, to make more content. So, uh, you know, in the olden days when the news came on, you know, for two minutes, uh, you know, every four hours, you know, you know the six o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news and that was it. That's all you ever heard. I think it was a lot more sane. But, um, uh, you know, there, the, the United States president is clearly in a bind. And um, he wants to tell the public that he has expert advisors who are advising him and the country. And yet when those expert advisors uh, go against what he thinks and what he says, he gets upset with them. Uh, rather than being upset with the situation, he wants to kill the messenger. And whether that messenger is Dr. Burks or Dr. Fauci or the New York Times or the Washington Post, um, his, his message in killing the messenger is so strong 
that he will use the term fake news to say that he, the, it's not that the messenger is telling news which is unpopular that he disagrees with, but that the message itself is wrong because he disagrees with it. So therefore it becomes fake news. And the moment that his followers believe that, it's so dangerous because if, if Dr. Fauci is fake news and Dr. Burke is fake, Burke's is fake news, then masks are fake news and gatherings are fake news and everything is fake news. I read today, and you might have seen it somewhere, I think it was maybe on, I don't, maybe it was in the New York Times, it said that uh, they have these COVID parties where uh, people who don't believe that it's serious go to the parties with an infected person to see if they could get infected and then it becomes nothing. And a 30-year-old died uh, who went to one of these parties. It's, it's unconfirmed, but that was what was published today in the, in the press. So, it, it, you know, although people get the idea that it's only uh, serious for people who have underlying problems and who are elderly, in fact, uh, there have been many 20-year-olds uh, in the 20, 20 to 30-year-old category who've died of it. Uh, so it is something that uh, is very serious. One of the most interesting things that I read about is that they asked the question, well, why is it that some people who are exposed get sick and some people don't get sick? And um, what they did was they took blood samples of people who gave blood before the virus broke out. In other words, talking about uh, in 2019 or earlier, before there was a virus. And when they looked at those blood samples, they actually found some um, cells that were protective against this virus, even though the virus hadn't occurred. And this could explain why some people are, uh, you know, uh, more negatively affected than others. But somehow or other, the body, through production of um, antigens, which uh, were maybe um, exposed to other viruses um, uh, that they built up a kind of a line of defense which was good even partly against this virus that they were never exposed to. So that's one, one of the explanations of why some people get more sick than others. Okay, Howard, do you have a, another question for Hershey? Yeah, and usually under in normal circumstances, it takes four to 10 years when there's not a pandemic to, to, um, to develop a virus. It's supposed to be- to A vaccine, you mean? Yeah, me a vaccine. So how, how are they able to do it so fast without, without cutting corners? Okay, that's an excellent question. The question was, um, since it takes normally the, ver the very fastest in the entire world history of a vaccine being created was four years. Um, normally, the vaccines are 10 years. It takes 10 years to create a vaccine. And how is it possible to create one so quickly? I would add another, another, uh, another point, which is there has never been a vaccine um, created to deal with any coronavirus. In other words, the whole family of coronaviruses, which includes the cold, which includes SARS and MERS, um, there's never been a vaccine against the common cold, uh, even though, you know, it would be a phenomenal seller. Imagine if they did one, how good a seller that would be. 
Um, so there's never been a vaccine against a, um, uh, a, 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 nasal, a nasal virus, we'll call it. And yet, and yet with the, they're, they're doing now um, mass um, studies with uh, samples of 30,000 people and more. And they've had very good indications of results with even uh, with smaller studies. So the answer of why they were able to do it is simple. It's such an emergency that so much money and so much effort and so much concentration is being put on it. It's like, you know, if you throw so much against the wall, something's gonna stick. You only throw two things against the wall, it's one thing. If you throw a million things against the wall, something's gonna stick. So that's really the answer. So much effort has been put into it. And the other answer is that the effort is being widespread. So it wasn't as if people got together and say, okay, here's the one solution to the problem and let's work on it. Um, they said everybody can come up with their own solution and see what works the best. And in that way, there'll be more than one vaccine uh, successfully uh, used and distributed. So it makes it all the safer that um, that will go. Um, now, one, one big issue is the issue of safety. So there's two issues. Number one, does it work? Number two, is it safe? And it's the issue of safety that re requires a huge sampling. So it, it's not enough to show that a vaccine works because if it works, but it's harmful even to a small population, that information has to be known and has to be dealt with. Uh, other vaccines in the past that have been used, uh, for example, in some cases causes Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, very rarely. Um, so that has to be measured. And if, if the safety is not enough, then uh, it could be that the, um, the Canada Health would not, uh, the Canada Health would not approve it or the CDC in the States wouldn't approve it uh, if the risk is too high. And so even if you have a vaccine that's produced and you've got a risk factor which is known, the next stage after that is to figure out, okay, how can we keep the vaccine safe and reduce the risk factor? Uh, do we do it by changing the dosage? Do we do it by changing the uh, number of times that you take it? Uh, do we, um, um, you know, change the mix of the uh, vaccine in different ways to keep it safe, but to reduce that risk factor. That's what takes the big time. Sure, if they find out that there's no risk factor whatsoever after giving it to 100,000 people, fantastic, you know, open up the production full shot. But in other vaccines, there always seems to be a risk factor, even if that factor is one in 30,000, one in 100,000, one in 20,000. So that's, that's, the, that's where we're at now. But things are looking up. If you believe Dr. Fauci, uh, who is, by the way, the person who um, was part of the uh, cure, won't call it cure, but the treatment for AIDS, he was on the front lines of that, which was the world's previous great epidemic. Um, he's, he's optimistic. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, the long term seems to be promising. Okay, Hershey, there was a question that we received uh, from a listener. 
asking, where did the virus come from? And I suspect that the subtext of this question was, did it come from a market, as was the hypothesis? There was right. a theory that it could have come from a lab because of the location in China where it was. And I believe in a previous episode, you spoke about, I think it was you, unless it was a podcast I listened yeah, to, but yeah, I think it yeah. was you, um, okay. that that the Russians, you know, during the Cold War, the Russians... Um, no, got people me. sick. It wasn't I you. Never, okay, I think no, it wasn't think, me. No, no, I never mentioned. But I think lab. something no. happened. There was a no. lab where people got sick. No. I, I, I forget now yeah. which. There, there, there was a case like that. There and I think that's probably was. what people are thinking. So, do you have any thoughts yeah, about about there that? Definitely was. Um, you know, if we just look at all the other uh, instances of diseases that were, including AIDS, uh, and including Ebola, take those to the most recent. Uh, um, let's say the most most recent serious cases of uh, mass um, uh, epidemics. Both of these things were definitely uh, passed from animals to humans. Somehow or other, this transmission from animals to humans happens, and once it gets into there, it spreads, of course, depending on the uh, ease of transmission, it can spread quickly or not that quickly. Um, and the indications were that this that did ha this was one of these animal to human transmissions. Um, we know for sure that animals harbor uh, viruses and diseases um, and that uh, most often are not passed from animal to human. Um, but in these cases, uh, it looks like they were. Now, exactly how that was done is not really known. So in other words, um, uh, it, you know, the, 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 the most common explanation is that bats were the ones who harbored it. Um, they might have been passed from bats to pangolins uh, and from pangolins to humans or it might have been passed directly from bats to humans. Um, uh, you know, we're not, we're not so sure about that. In the case of AIDS, it, see, it seems to have been passed from chimpanzees to humans, from somebody eating a chimpanzee. In the case of Ebola, um, I don't remember now what, what, what was the animal host of that. But um, it can happen that way. Um, and it seems like um, that's the way it did happen. Now you say, well, why China? Why, you know, there's animals all over the world. Why would it be passed in China? And why is it, for example, that the flu vaccine, <clears throat> the regular influenza vaccine, seems the, the strain seems to originate in China also? And it's simply a question of... Um, having so many people living in such compact conditions that it's and, and becoming in such close contact with animals that it could easily pass from animal to human and then it spreads quickly then on. If you think of our lives in North America, uh, except for our pet dogs or cats, uh, people have no contact whatsoever with animals. Nobody goes out and kills their own chickens. Nobody goes hunting. Um, nobody has, uh, um, you know, stray animals uh, that they could come into contact with. 
because we're we're a kind of a sanitized urban society. Uh, we don't have pigs in our backyards. So many people in the third world, the chickens and pigs live downstairs and the people live upstairs. And uh, the amount of sanitation, in other words, uh, getting rid of the, of the waste products of their animals is not uh, 100% clear and clean. And so you can just imagine in those conditions how, and, and it's hot. So imagine in those conditions how much easier it would be to spread a virus if it did get going, or a bacteria, for example, if it did get going. So that's why uh, the origin is there, and you know, animal to human is how it happened. Sure, there are, uh, what's the word, uh, conspiracy theorists who say you know, the Chinese planted it on the rest of the world. It came from a, a virus facility in Wuhan, which they have one. There is a virus research um, facility in Wuhan. Maybe something escaped from there and nobody said anything. You know, once you're getting into conspiracies, uh, there's no end to it. The, uh, this Dr. Emanuel that uh, President Trump uh, uh, gave a uh, plug to uh, was one who said that, you know, demons have sex with people. And that's the cause of their uh, of getting all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. And uh, well, once you get into the demonology part, you know, some people could believe anything. And uh, it's scary enough as it is, there are people who, you know, don't understand science. They don't understand statistics. They don't understand, um, you know, the, the, the facts of how the earth works. And if that's the case, then you can believe in anything devils, angels, and all kinds of things. Can I ask a question? Uh, this is maybe going a little bit beyond the virus, but you okay, know, the, no the explanation you gave, which I think is the, the consensus explanation of the food market and, and bat and so on, uh, the Canadian uh, singer Brian Adams uh, tweeted about this. He's a vegetarian and he's sort of, he's against all sorts of uh, you know, markets, I guess, where animals are sold. And he was harshly criticized because people said, oh, that what you're saying is a racist thing because you are blaming, quote unquote, Chinese people. Uh, even if he wasn't obviously accusing um, people in Canada or people who happen to be Chinese anywhere, he's specifically talking about a country called China where this happened. So I guess my question is, when we talk about these things, do you find that the media or experts or, or, or whatnot are... Uh, are cautious about how they present um, the sort of the source of this because they know that there will be, of course, there will be some people in Canada, the United States, who will then take that information and say, aha, therefore, the Chinese community that I live next to is bad, right. just as if uh, this virus had started in Israel, there would be people saying, aha, the Jewish community is right. bad, and so on. So how do you, how do you, Deal with sure. That. That, I think that's very logical and very true. And I think that the media are careful about it for all those reasons. I think that stands to, it stands to reason. Um, all you have to do is think of 9-11 uh, when it happened. Uh, there were attacks on uh, the, the day after there were poor Sikhs who were wearing turbans who were killed uh, because they were wearing turbans. And, they, and the Americans <laughs> didn't know the difference between a Sikh and a Muslim. So it's pretty easy to transfer prejudice that's already there to uh, attacks on innocent people. And it's happened uh, in Canada to Chinese people. It's happened in the U.S. to, to Chinese people. And um, 
And similarly, uh, you know, uh, Muslim people get attacked if there happens to be an incident, uh, you know, halfway around the world. So the, 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 you know, the, the fuel is there. And all you need to do is throw some, uh, you know, match onto it, and then the whole thing can blow up. So I think it's true that the media are careful to uh, not cast blame on a particular group of people for this. Um, you know, in, in, I would say, in hindsight, that it's true that when this virus did broke out, break out, the Chinese did try to hide it. You know, and you remember the doctor who died after ringing the alarm bell and he was told to, to shut up, hush up. But relatively quickly, and I'm saying relatively quickly, they did release the whole uh, structure of the virus that was accurate so that people all around the world could then work on it, on a cure, um, because they knew how serious this was getting. Um, I would just like to comment that uh, the, the Spanish flu epidemic of 1918 uh, should have been called the American flu, because it started in the States and it got spread from the States to Europe. And why they ended up calling it the Spanish flu, who knows, you know? But it should have been called the American flu. So that's, uh, you know, Mr. Trump, who calls it the China virus, uh, you know, should look in his own backyard and rename the Spanish flu of 1918 to the American virus. American flu, because that's where, that's where it did start. It doesn't really matter what you call it. It doesn't help to blame a country, because uh, so long as the country didn't sort of start it and spread it on purpose, where it started is just a matter of um, happenstance. You know, it could have started someplace else. There was one that started in Saudi Arabia and the, 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 the camel one, you know, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. Uh, nobody is blaming Yemen or Saudi Arabia for starting an epidemic because so long as you didn't do it on purpose, it's just a, you know, it's just a, a kind of a matter of luck in a way. Uh, thank you for the interesting uh, talk today. You're back next Tuesday, yes? Right. Yeah, next Tuesday, uh, I'm going to try to talk about uh, American politics since this week there are going to be some important um, primaries. And uh, because President Trump decided that maybe maybe it's not worth having an election altogether, you know, so that comment, uh, you know, certainly got people to pick their ears up. And that might be a good subject for next week. Okay, very good. And I just want to remind uh, the folks listening today on the Telephone Broadcasting Service that tomorrow at two, we have an encore presentation of author Emily St. John Mandel, who will be presenting her book, The Glass Hotel. And we also have Kathy Diamond talking about Nickel Boys by Colson Whitehead. So that is the show for today. Thank you, Hershey. Thank you so much, Daryl. Thanks, everybody, for listening in. And I hope to hear you all. Or I, hope to, I hope you are all there to hear um, next week. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for listening here today. The show is produced by me, Daryl Levine. The telephone broadcasting service and podcast was launched as a way to get content into your home during the pandemic period. As you know, we had to stop our events at the library and at Parks and Recreation so we hope you're enjoying the podcast as a sort of a virtual way of getting the content to you so you can hear your favorite speakers at home. If you're enjoying the podcast, 
please leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts. Every rating and review helps others to find the show. Have a great day.